You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Ken Davies. As per usual, I'm joined by food and business historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. So Janice, what's in the pantry today? Today, our episode is about the Greek connection to Manitoba burger restaurants. Oh man, okay, I love those places. I'm a VJ's regular. Me too, the VJ's chili cheese dog, late at night, nothing better. I go in for the the VJ's chili burger. They can never give you enough napkins. It's It's, true, we should go get some now. Yes, we should. But before that, let's continue on with this episode. Fine. (laughs) So like our first episode, once again, we have a University of Winnipeg student that helped produce the episode, uh, Zachary Hamilton. And who did he interview for the Greek burger restaurant connection? He interviewed Dimitri Skouris, whose family has owned the legendary Red Top restaurant since 1960. And he also interviewed Johnny Janakis. That's Johnny G. His restaurants are like super famous in Winnipeg for being like the go-to place for late night eating. Yes, and he's owned many other burger restaurants, including the famous Thunderbird in Winnipeg's North End. Oh man, that's been open for decades. Do either of them share one of their, you know, famous Greek burger chili recipes? Not quite, but most importantly, John Janakis provides a glimpse into the support networks set up by Greek immigrants in the post-war era. Those networks were essential in creating many of the longtime food-based businesses in Winnipeg. All right, let's give it a listen. I have a feeling we're going to have to go for VJs after this. Definitely. someone coming to Winnipeg, it doesn't take long to notice the hamburger takes center stage in the city's culinary landscape. There are several drive-ins scattered throughout the city which deal more or less exclusively in burgers, fries, and milkshakes. Ask a Winnipegger where to find the city's best burger and you will likely be directed to one of these institutions. As I became more familiar with these hamburger stands in the months after moving to the city in 2013, I became more and more certain this is a distinct Winnipeg phenomenon. I knew there was a story behind this if I could just find the right people to talk to. I'm Zach Hamilton with the Manitoba Food History Project. Thinking about Winnipeg's burger history, there are two questions that wouldn't leave me alone. First, what's the story behind the topping of chili sauce so commonly served on the burgers? Second, Why are such a majority of local burger places owned or founded by Greek Canadians? Could there be a connection here? In search of answers, I reached out to the Skouris family, owners of the long-standing Red Top Drive-In on St. Mary's Road. One of the founder's sons, Dimitri, told me he was happy to help, but if I wanted the full story, I should get in touch with a man named John Janakis. John may be better known to locals as Johnny, founder of his namesake restaurant, Johnny G's, among other celebrated Winnipeg eateries. I met with John and Dimitri to talk about the beginnings of Winnipeg's Greek burger scene. As for my question about the chili sauce, the answer was actually pretty straightforward, except John had forgotten his name. He knew it was Peter something, and he came from Thunder Bay. 
Peter, uh, I forget his, his last name now, what it is. He's, he was the originator that he brought the chili in town. Yeah, somebody from Thunder Bay, forward and an old time, that he was born and raised, what it was his father come from, from Rumeli. Well, uh, then afterwards, the Pesaran, the Pesaran, the recipe to, uh, uh, some people, they were willingly to give the recipe, some people, they develop their own, and everything else, because if you have something good to use, you don't want to give it, give it to somebody else. So this is the same thing with anybody else. You have a recipe, you, you try to keep it, to keep it to yourself. But the majority of one Greek could give it to the other Greek. So the guy is John Skouras, his dad, he was in, in the San Vitellum and me Phillips. There's no competition to me. You understand what I'm saying? We all try to help one another some way, somehow. So it turns out my imagination got the better of me, and I got a little less intrigue and mystique than I expected with the recipe. However, John's mention that one Greek will give it to another was promising in answering my more important question about Greek burger stand ownership in Manitoba. To do this, John starts us off in the mid-20th century. Well, they come in when 1950-54, the boys that came in there, they weren't very well educated to, to rest on and go in, in, in anything else. So they, they never had the, uh, the strength that should go to school, so they had out way to get off the boat, they had to go to work. The scotch, the saves, and they put a few dollars together, they'd be able to put up a, a hamburger stand. You know what I mean? So they work them out themselves mostly. And this is what the, the successful after, afterwards by being in many, many years in business and hard work, this is what you achievement of. We all work for no, no less than 15, 15, 16 hours a day because don't you know, forget we come here, we didn't have nothing in our pockets. When I got off in Halifax, I only had $20 in my pocket to make it from Halifax to Winnipeg. So we had to work. In those days, the minimum wage was only 54 cents an hour. But 54 cents was 54 cents, though. You could have bought a lot of things. A cup of coffee was only a nickel. Hamburg was only 15 cents. French fries was 10, 10 cents. So the things, they was, they, was, uh, they was so bad, but everything equivalent to that, the money was, rent was cheap to, to rent place, and we all lived on 315 Vaughan Street, the most of the, well, the immigrants that come in because they're going to be affordable. They only the rooms they were $19 a month. Hard work is a necessary ingredient to success, and a low cost of living doesn't hurt. But Dimitri and John also placed value on Winnipeg's Greek community and their willingness to help out new immigrants from Greece. We had a small community. The old time is they bought a place on the corner of uh, Ellis and uh, Vaughan. We had a priest comes in once a month that we uh, had do a church for us. And the, uh, the old timers, some of us after the church, they used to uh, take us and give us the hospitality on, on their own home so they can treat us because most of us then there was no parents here, no nothing. So just, uh, just a month by ourselves. The thing about the, uh, the Greeks, they're very philoxenisi, uh, which are very hospitable people. They know how it is to, to treat a person, how to take and give because we're the kind of a people that we grow up, we come from uh, the villages where we didn't have much. So we didn't because all of a sudden we're in a business, we had maybe a few more dollars than any, anybody else because of the reason we had that, because times that we put 
ourselves in the restaurants for 15, 16 uh, hours a day, like Dimitri said. Me and his dad would come here, but he had nothing either. But he had a, he had a couple brothers here, and I had a brother here that at least we had somebody that could have paid the rent. While these stories help show a hospitable Greek community in the city, they don't explain the emergence of a citywide culinary sensation. On this topic, Dimitri and John were able to shed some light on a sort of informal business network among Greek Canadians in the city. This network encouraged Greek newcomers to start a business of their own. So some of the stories that I remember my dad telling me, and, and you can probably test to this, is um, when a new Greek immigrant, a new young boy would come to the city, a lot of the, the current people who lived here that, that started a restaurant or were in the restaurant would take them under their wing and bring them in give them a job, whether it's a dishwasher, whether it was... Well, this is what it was, this is what it was. You know, they, they, they had to help us, you know what I mean? They, they put us something, they were the people, they had restaurants, or some of the people, they had floor shops, it was a grandma's fruit market, it was a corner of Vaughn and, and Porridge. They had a candy store there, and they used to sell fruit and everything else, so they, they hired a couple of boys to do uh, a cleanups, teach them how to, to do candies and everything else, vice versa. But the young ladies, mostly they would come in those, those years, they used to be going to work in at the factories. It's a Simsters, most of it, because, like I said, because the lack of uh, education, the uh, lack of uh, not uh, be able to, to speak the language. So that this is, yeah, you, we did whatever we, where we can do. In John's experience, many of these Greek newcomers to Canada got their start in food service with the goal of eventually owning their own restaurant. Well, how can I say he was a gentleman... Uh, all the restaurants they had, if it was the uh, the party storeroom restaurant, they, if he had a room that he could give you, become a dishwasher. From there, he uh, graduated to uh, to learn how to uh, make a hamburger or to to learn how to, to do some cooking. Evolve, and we all afterwards we went on our own. One of us either were, either were to be a brothers or to be a. Other people used to get together, and we had, yeah, one guy had maybe a couple thousand dollars, the other guy had a couple more thousand dollars. We combined it together, and we went to business. The transmission of knowledge and resources is not unique to this community. For instance, a few decades earlier in California, Italian immigrants were creating similar networks for the production and distribution of wine. In the case of Winnipeg's Greek burger scene, there were connections to be made outside of the ethnic community. John remembers reaching out to more traditional resources to start a business. The way we, most of us, raised the, the money, we wanted to open up restaurants was the, like, modern dairies. It was the ones that he helped us to go ahead with it. We used to then, the reason that he helped us, because we were able to use his merchandise. We had to buy the milk, the cream, the ice cream from them, and then that, that's the way they help us. And the banks was more uh, lenient there, that you'd be able to, to get a small loan we didn't need very, very big loans to, to open up a, up a restaurant. With the dollars $30,000, you could open up establishment, a restaurant. Not like today, you need half a million dollars or more to, to open up a restaurant. Once the restaurant was open, the real work would begin. Dimitri and John both talk about the need for self-enforced overworking and underpaying to get the restaurant off the ground. It may have been hard work, but John and Dimitri say the self-reliance and kinship made it worth the effort. And I said to each young fella, if he's willing to invest 15, 16 hours work for somebody else, why don't you do it for yourself? Yeah. If you can find a way to do this job on your own, you'll be more successful. 
instead of having somebody else to do what you do. You know, my the, the story that I that always was impressed upon me and my father when when him and Gus started the the Red Top there, he would give his wages to my uncle because he had two young kids at the time, now three, but he needed to feed the kids. And my dad would say, you know what, I'll be okay. I can eat French fries at the restaurant. You go feed your kids. You take my salary. And That's what it is. That's how we, how we got by. We help one another. For these budding restaurateurs, establishing themselves also involved establishing their restaurant as a positive presence in the community. This would prove especially important in providing a unique experience that set them apart from increasingly popular fast food chains. Dimitri looks to the success of his family's restaurant as an example. I think one of the bigger successes that I've seen, <clears throat> though, for like the Thunderbird restaurant, the Red Top, you know, Juniors, was that if you went to the restaurant, you would see the owner there. He was in there saying hello to you. He was cooking your food. Yes. He was washing the dishes. He was you know, spending the half an hour to get to know you and create a relationship with you and really involve themselves in the customer's lives. And I think the customers appreciate that and that's why you get so much loyalty and that's why you ended up getting these landmark institutions like the Thunderbird, like the Red Top, where, you know, you've had, I'll, I'll speak from our side, like you've had these tragedies, you know, my father passed away 10 years ago, my brother passed away. But the customers still come in because of, you know, my mom's there now every day. She's there in the morning. She's there if you come in in the afternoon. Um, John will probably share some stories here too, but, you know, and I won't mention her names, but there's been pretty well-to-do people in the city who, when they were 18 or 19, would come into the restaurant. They'd be sitting in a booth crying, and my dad would pull them to the back in the hall and say, what's going on? I just lost my job at, you know, the Tribune. I have rent to pay. I have this car payment. I have nothing. I'm 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 broken. I'm, I'm I don't know what to do. And my dad would say, "Well, here. Here's a couple thousand dollars. Take care of what you need to do. Cover your your debts. Find a job. Start working. You can pay him back whenever you have the money." And the guy would say, "You know, I'll pay you back with interest." And my dad, I'm sure John was the same way, would, would say, "You don't need to give me any interest." If a young fella come in, it was the hotel across the street. They used to go across the street. They have a few drinks. They come to a restaurant. A lot of guys, they say, Johnny, I have got no money. I say, sit down and eat. If you remember someday, you go by and you pay me. And nobody ever cheat me. They always come back later, and they try to pay me double. I say, no, no, this is what you owe me. This is what you pay, and that's it. You're more than welcome at any time. That's why I never had no problems. I had lots of good memories and good friendship. Small-scale restaurants can serve as a stepping stone for ventures that require a larger investment. This is seen more recently with food trucks as a temporary stop on the way to owning a restaurant. John eventually made his way to having multiple licensed sit-down restaurants in the city, but even before this, he made a highly ambitious investment. A nightclub stocked with a roster of high-profile acts right in the heart of downtown Winnipeg. Oh, we, had a, we had a pretty good success. The only, the only problem that we had when we opened up the, uh, the nightclub, because was high cost was the entertainment. In order to bring, to bring somebody from, from Chicago, look what it's gotta come. You gotta bring somebody from mostly, mostly the, the high entertainers. We brought all the, all the nostalgia that I was, about Fat Sadamano, Chubby Checkers, uh, Frank Sonata Jr., uh, what's his name, uh, Jerry Lewis's son, Rosemary Caluni. Nightly, nightly call, 19 call, his daughter, that she was here. 
and we were paying her, and then she, when she left, she wanted, because she didn't do very good drawing, she, because she was known, but when she went back to New York, after that, she phones us, she says, you people can't afford to have me, because she was $100,000 a week uh, entertainment. John took this blow in stride, chalking it up to a life lesson, and continued with his original task of bringing burgers to the masses and establishing himself as a member of Winnipeg's burger royalty. It's very costly. Better off to sell hamburgers and french fries that have to do with them. But less is, less is cost, cost you money. Put you back 20 years. While John and Dimitri have established that there's a lot of hard work and networking involved in starting a business, John also describes a challenge unique to those trying to establish themselves in a foreign country. The challenge was the, the toughest thing was the language, that you had to have a people repeat it, the, the same word three, maybe three, four times before you understand what they meant. Especially when you come here, I work as a, in a shoeshine parlor. Mr. Blick, that he owned the CGOB, he used to come in, I used to shine his shoes, and he asked me questions. I used to go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And the gentleman that was, was a Greek, he asked Mr. Blake, he says, ask, he says, something wrong with this young fellow? He says, Mr. Blake, he says, it's not that he's this, because he's an immigrant, he doesn't understand what you're saying. This is, this is what the, the, the biggest problem. But as you go along, you, you learn. You have, to, you have to learn. The biggest problem, the same thing if you have to go in Greece or you go to France or you go to Germany, you, the first maybe six months or a year, you want to find it very tough for you to communicate. And you, you say, that I'm ready to put my hands up in the air and I, I got to go back where I come from. This is this. But today, the, the, the immigrants, mostly they come in, they all, uh, they all speak, speak the language. Each young Greek coming in today, they, they speak uh, the language very fluently. Either if they come from Ethiopia or they come where they come from, they all sounds to me, some, the majority of them, they, they all speak, speak English. Of course, the challenges posed by language barriers persist for some even today. For example, many Mexican food truck owners in Columbus, Ohio, see the language barrier as a hindrance to both their mobility within the city and their ability to effectively deal with other parties, such as banks. However, this situation is more complex, as many of them do not have U.S. citizenship, which means they need to be conscious of their visibility. Winnipeg's network of Greek-Canadian business owners gives us a nice case study for the long-standing tradition of informal ethnic business networks occurring during diaspora. John and Dimitri's stories have a somewhat universal flavor to them, as many aspects of the experiences described in the interview can be seen across North America. Krishnandu Reyes, the ethnic restaurateur, proposes both kin networks, such as the Greek-owned restaurant network, and self-imposed long hours, similar to that experienced by Dimitri's father and John, as key elements of success for an immigrant opening a restaurant. This is alongside more widely acknowledged factors like a low capital requirement for certain types of restaurants, like hamburger stands, or more recently, food trucks. Having access to sources of resources and knowledge was an invaluable asset to somebody entering the restaurant industry in 20th century Winnipeg. As a beneficiary of this asset in his earlier years, John continued the tradition of passing on knowledge when he retired. I, the people that take over over the uh, my restaurant now that I'm renting it out, I have, of course, I pass about the recipes and everything else, how to do the chickens, they do or whatever thing that I did. 
You see, today, the people that say gravy, nobody makes gravy anymore. It all comes in the bags. You put, put it on the pot, put a little water, you mix it up, and out it goes. But we're, we're used to boil bones, and we get the juices out of it, and that's how we make we made the gravies. Like his cooking techniques, John's way of doing business is old-fashioned. At the risk of sounding cliched, Winnipeg's burger joints and the networks behind them are an artifact from a simpler time. It's an old saying in Greek, The translation of this is, Your words fill up my stomach, but it's okay, you can keep it. You understand what I'm saying? This is because our start is a, is a, is a young boy who grew up, like his father grew up in the village, and everything else, that we knew how to, to share and, and give to one another to go on in life. But today, it's, it's a different, different world. We're living in it. Times may have changed, but the creation of kinship and business ties in Winnipeg's Greek community helped shape the culinary landscape of the city to this day. And the resulting economic mobility for new immigrants to Canada in the 20th century Winnipeg carried over to Dimitri's generation. Winnipeg's burger history goes to show that investigating something as trivial-seeming as a food trend can open up stories of cultural and economic significance. You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast produced by myself, Kent Davies, research written and narrated by Zachary Hamilton, hosted by Janice Thiessen and myself, Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast and is also our web designer. Sarah Story is our project coordinator. Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and all the work we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story that you want to share, contact us by clicking on the contact link on our website. Preserves is made possible by a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.